الحمد لله رب العالمين نحمده ونستعينه ونعبده ونتوكل عليه وما لنا الا نتوكل على الله وقد هدانا سبلنا ولنصبرن على ما اذيتمونا واشهد ان لا اله الا الله لا معبود بحق سواه وهو الذي في السماء رب واله يعبد ويطاع وفي الارض رب واله يعبد ويطاع واشهد ان سيدنا واولنا وسابقنا والشهيد علينا محمد صلى الله عليه واله وسلم عبده ورسوله لقد كان لكم في رسول الله اسوه حسنه لمن كان يرجو الله واليوم الاخر وذكر الله كثيرا من يطع الله ورسوله واولي الامر من المؤمنين فلا مضل له ومن يعص الله ورسوله واولي الامر من المؤمنين فلا هادي له اما بعد ايها الاخوه ايها المؤمنون ايها الاخوات ايتها الاخوات this khutbah is going to probably get on some individuals nerves we don't mean to do that what we are trying to express is in all sincerity and brotherhood and concern and for those who may feel somewhat either offended or belittled or even humiliated by some of what is going to be said please overcome your psychological or your traditional drawbacks and try as much as possible to understand what is being said in the light of Allah's guiding words and the prophet's guiding teachings In, there's an ayah in Surah Al-Ahzab that says فَبَشِّرْ عِبَادِ or فَبَشِّرْ عِبَادِ الَّذِينَ يَسْتَمِعُونَ الْقَوْلَ فَيَتَّبِعُونَ أَحْسَنَةِ أُولَئِكَ الَّذِينَ هَدَاهُمُ اللَّهِ 
وأولئك هم أولو الألباب Break good news The rough meaning of this ayah is And break good news To Allah To my servants To my subjects Those who listen To what is being said And follow through With the best of what they listen to Those are the ones that Allah has guided And those are the ones Who have core thoughts Core thinking Once again the ayah says فَبَشِّرْ عِبَادِ الَّذِينَ يَسْتَمِعُونَ الْقَوْلَ فَيَتَّبِعُونَ أَحْسَنَةِ أُولَٰئِكَ الَّذِينَ هَدَاهُمُ اللَّهُ وَأُولَٰئِكَ هُمْ أُولُو الْأَلْبَابِ One of the observations in our contemporary societies, wherever they are, majority Muslim societies, minority Muslim societies, or communities, we realize that there are some, and remember brothers and sisters, and I've said this many times before, but I have to say it again. I try to avoid using words that have sectarian connotations, sectarian shades of distractions to them. But there, and so I'm going to use these two words that have these sectarian suggestions to them. The Sunni and the Shi'i word in this khutbah, and I don't mean it with any sectarian reference. One of the observations in our time is that there are some Muslim Sunnis who become Muslim Shi'is. And there are some Muslim Shi'is who become Muslim Sunnis. <clears throat> and there's nothing wrong, actually. A healthy and a mature Muslim can consider himself a Sunni and a Shi'i at the same time. That's the healthy Muslim that there's not many of them around, unfortunately. So we have this exclusivity, you're either a Sunni and therefore you cannot be a Shi'i, or either you're a Shi'i and therefore you cannot be a Sunni. This is what we have, this is real life. And we're trying just to diagnose ourselves. Nothing, it's healthy to do that. <clears throat> and if we come up with a disease, it's healthy to know what that disease is so we can cure it. We have to cure, we have to cure sectarianism by diagnosing it. So when we look at this reality of ours, we find out, and only Allah has the final calculation or the final number, but as it appears, Allahu A'lam, there are more of those Muslims who are Sunnis, who are interested or become Shi'is, than there are those Muslims who are Shi'is, who are interested 
and then become Sunnis. That's, I think, a valid observation. So, how how do we how do we look at this? How do we try to get to the nitty gritty of it all? First of all, when we speak about those Sunni Muslims, we have to realize that the loud speakers and the loud mouths within this Sunni context are those who are Salafis. And the Salafis, because they have the money, they give the impression that they represent all the rest of the Muslims who are not Shias, all the rest of the Muslims in the world. That's also the general diagnosis of our contemporary condition. It's not, it's not so, they don't speak for the rest of the Sunni Muslims, but that's the way the rest of the world understands it, whether it's the Muslim world or the non-Muslim world. And this is taking place, these types of dynamics are taking place when there is so much negative, defamatory, insulting accusations that are going towards the Shiites. You would think, with all of the bad press that the Shiites have in this world, uh, who's going to be interested in what these Shiites are? But it turns out, no, there's some interest. There's some significant interest in what is all this, what are these, all these Shiites standing for? Let us say, to begin with, the average Sunni, and there's, those are the majority of those out there, the overwhelming majority, they're not interested when, when you speak about Shi'is, they're not really interested in the concept of Isma or the concept of Muta or the concept of Al-Mahdi who is living somewhere unknown or somewhere known but does not appear. The, the, the Muslims who are Sunnis are not really concerned with anything like that. And these are base, basic beliefs in the Shi'i context. There are other accusations and lies, fabrications, that are generated by the Salafis in the Sunni context against those who are Shi'is. And such fabrications are that the Shi'is have an alternate Qur'an or another Qur'an. That's one of those accusations. That the Shi'is, they say, all the Sahaba are kafirs. That's another accusation. Another accusation is some Shi'is say that Jibreel lost his way. Instead of going to Imam Ali, he went to Muhammad, the Prophet. And this message was supposed to be given. Anyways, and then there are 
the Salafi Sunnis, they blow out of context the foul language that some Shi'is use, and the some here is a minority some, against the first generation Muslims. As this is our internal, more or less, give and take, we also realize that when a Sunni becomes a Shi'i, the Shi'i uh, ulama, excuse me, when, the, when a Sunni becomes a Shi'i, the Sunni ulama become nervous. Why did this happen? This is not supposed to happen. Oh my God, something is going wrong here. That's on one side. On the other side, when a Shi'i becomes a Sunni, the Shi'i ulama don't show that type of agitation or nervousness. they They don't act the same way the Sunni ulama act. Now, as I said at the beginning, and I have to say this again, because I know here I'm treading on delicate territory. It is healthy to consider yourself a Sunni and a Shi'i at the same time. One is inclusive of the other. Those who make one or the other exclusive, and they exist, they're not the majority by any stretch of the imagination, just exclude them from your mind and from yourself. They will fall at the wayside as we go forward. Then you begin to listen to these Salafis who have the microphone and who have the media. You begin to listen to them and the way they explain Islam, you begin to think that Allah is in need of you. If we are Muslims who are reading our sources, our Quran and our Sunnah accurately, we know that we are in need of Allah. It's not Allah who's in need of us. But anyone who gives a listening ear to the Salafis who claim that they speak for the Sunnis, then you you find out this relationship is warped. A Muslim's relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is warped. <clears throat> when we read the Quran, like let's take an example to so you can get a feeling for what I'm saying. Let's say a person doesn't pray. The Salafi types will make the person feel the person who's not praying make that person feel like they have committed one of the major sins that is not a, a, a major sin. If you're not praying, that's not a major sin. Because salah, as are the other uh, rituals of Islam, are a means to an end. They're not the end in themselves. In the Salafi mentality and in the Salafi da'wah, that is the end. So they have these confused. And that goes to show you that these they are not 
closely interacting with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Qur'an. If you follow these ayat in the Qur'an, you will find that the rituals, what we are ordered to do, whether they are rituals or otherwise, it is, and you'll find these ayat, you'll listen to the end of the ayat, I'm going to say a few of them now, but when you read the Qur'an, remember that what is being said before the end of the ayah is a means to an end. So what are what's the end? لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَذَكَّرُونَ لَعَلَّكُمْ تُؤْمِنُونَ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَفَكَّرُونَ All of these are ends. But that's not the case when you encounter a Salafi and the quasi-Salafis that are around. That's not the case with them. So they have this whole issue now confused. And they confuse the others. And they have the wherewithal to do that because they have the money. They have the finances. They have the budgets. Right now, the, the ghost in the psychology of these Salafis who purport to speak for the Sunnis the ghost in their psychology is Shi'is. For those of you who are still young, relatively young, we're all young in spirit. For those of you who are still relatively young, you may not know it, but before the Islamic revolution in Iran, the ghost in the Sunni psychology was at tasawwuf Sufism, the Sufis. These are kafirs, these are mushriks, these are this, that, and the other. Shias didn't figure in at all. Oh, no one is paying attention to oh, These are some Muslims, they have an odd way of performing or understanding Islam. But yeah, no, they're Muslims. So after the Islamic revolution occurred, oh, now the Shias have become target number one, and the Sufis have been marginalized. They're still not accepted. They're still, you know, not Muslims by the statements of some of these Salafis. So we come back <clears throat> to this psychology, this intra-Islamic psychology among us. And we ask, so why is it that we have Muslims who are Sunnis, who are more interested in Shia, what we may call, Shi'i Islam than the other way around than Shi'i Muslims being interested in what we may call Sunni Islam why? why do you okay to make it easier to understand let's forget about Sunni and Shi'i for this moment and let's go to a Christian and a Muslim why is it ask yourself why is it that there are Christians who become Muslims what draws them to Islam what captures their heart towards Islam and there are Muslims I mean there are Christians and even non-Christians who become Muslims and you ask yourself why did they become Muslims <laughs> and the answer to that is probably because their under their reading and understanding of Islam 
gave them satisfactory answers to their heart and their mind together. So yeah, this makes sense. They look at, okay, we, we, we believe in a trinity. Okay, let's, let's, they say to themselves, let's consider what is the meaning of this trinity? Is it one in three? Is it three in one? Was Jesus God? Was Jesus God incarnate? Was Jesus a third of God? Was God a third of Jesus? They go in these circular mental avenues to try to find an answer to what their mind and heart are concerned with and they can't find one that is satisfactory to the heart and to the mind. They don't find it. They come, they read about what's Islam, what does Islam say? Oh my God, this this is answering me in my heart and in my mind. I'm a Muslim. They become Muslims because the the logic, the consistency, the natural order of things goes right to them. Okay, so we understand that. Many of these, if not the overwhelming 99%, they become Muslims because they gave it an effort to understand what Islam is about. There are the exceptions. Someone meets some Christian, meets a Muslim, and through that interpersonal relationship, understands what Islam is through the good character, the superior character of the Muslim, morally, in his his or her behavior, etc., and they become Muslims. But most of the times, these individuals become Muslims because they thought through the process. They compared and contrasted, and they found Islam is my answer. I'm a Muslim. Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna Muhammadan Rasulullah. Now, if we take this same analogy. And we apply it to the Sunni Shi'i context. When you come to the Sunni Salafi stuff, you find in the books of the this strain of Muslims, you find they speak about Allah. Allah has a hand. The hand has fingers to it. The fingers have may have fingernails to them. The body has an arm. Allah's body has a head. What's going on here? The Muslim who is following this this type of information begins to suffer from the same malady that the Christian was suffering from when he was thinking about God. And so that's why it's not appealing. This type of Salafi Sunni presentation of what, the, what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says and what the Prophet says becomes a turn-off. You're turning off Muslims. So in our house of Islam, when the Salafis are turning some Muslims off, they go looking for something that will satisfy their mind and their heart. And because in the Muslim house, the Shi'i Twelvers are the most active in presenting their understanding of Islam, which agrees with logic, it agrees with the mind, it agrees with the heart, 
The others, there's Ibadi Muslims who are not Salafis or Sunnis. There's Zaidi Muslims, there's Ismaili Muslims, others. But they are not as active as the Shi'i Ithna Ashari Muslims are in trying to explain their understanding of Tawheed, their understanding of Allah, their understanding of the Prophet. And besides, that is in the mental area. In the emotional area, the Salafis don't have a love for Allah's Prophet's family. That's a very significant, a very important component. They turn These Salafi types, they turn Muslims off. And by nature, by normal inclination, a Muslim has an attachment to Allah's, to Allah's Prophet's family. Because of the Muslims' attachment to Allah and His Prophet. And the Salafis begin to turn Muslims off in this regard. So, the Muslim Sunni is not interested in when Ashura comes along, some Shi'is begin to flagellate themselves. They begin to have their bodies bleed. They hit themselves on the head, on the back, on the chest. All, and that, that, that doesn't interest any Muslim. It doesn't interest any non-Muslim. As much as, what substance have you to offer? When they understand the substance you have to offer, then they're okay, mashallah. Now we understand. And may I say, had the Mu'tazilis survived, unfortunately this is a dark chapter in our history, the Hanbalis, during that time, the Abbasi era, scored a resounding victory against Islamic thinking. But if Islamic thinking still lived on as a, let's call it a school of thought, if it still lived on in today's day, there would be much more understanding of Islam than we have nowadays. And these Salafis themselves, they don't even know their own history. They, uh, Ahmad ibn Hanbal, his grave was a place that was visited by his followers. At tamassuh bil qubur, that's done with the, uh, with the burial place of Ahmad ibn Hanbal. But then comes Ibn Taymiyyah, and then comes Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, and that part of history is either omitted altogether, or it is marginalized, where only a few deep researchers realize, hey, wait a minute, you who call yourselves Hanbalis and Salafis and all of this, look at how you consider the grave of Ahmad ibn Hanbal by his students, by his generation of Muslims. They used to visit his grave just like the Shi'is, they visit Imam al Hussein's grave or the other Imam's graves. So, why is this inconsistency? Why are these fabrications? What's going on here? And then we go back to the historical information that we have, and we haven't done our homework on that information. And some Sunnis say all of the Sahaba are Udul. See, the, 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 the problem with Sunnis and Shia is they have two words that basically mean the same 
in each one of these contexts. The Shi'is have the asma, the Imams are masums. They don't they don't they don't make mistakes. And the Sunnis, they don't use the word asma, they use the word they don't use the word masums, they use the word udul. Meaning they are adil. They don't but what they mean by it is the same thing that the that the Shi'is mean when they say asma. So no Sahabi can make a mistake. The end result is the same. Both of them suffer from the same ailment. And you can't, you can't approach them because this, this has become to them holy. What are you going to say to them when they say something like that? Out of the 114,000 Muslims called by the Sunni Sahabis, out of the hundred, because you know, Hajjat al Wada, they all came to the Hajj, and the Prophet saw all of them, so automatically they all became Sahabis. Under the, uh, within the 114,000 of them, there's only 5,000 Muhajireen and Al Ansar. And even among the Muhajireen and Al Ansar, not all of them are Sahabis in that Udul sense of the word. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran says pertaining to Al-Ansar يُحِبُّونَ مَنْ هَاجَرَ إِلَيْهِمْ وَيُؤْثِرُونَ عَلَىٰ أَنفُسِهِمْ This is a definition of who should be considered udul. Not everyone. The same thing with Al-Muhajireen. Not all the Muhajireen are to be considered udul. فَمَنْ كَانَتْ هِجْرَتُهُ إِلَىٰ إِمْرَأَةٍ يَنْكِحُهَا أَوْ إِلَىٰ دُنْيَا يُصِيبُهَا فَهِجْرَتُهُ إِلَىٰ مَا هَاجَرَ إِلَيْهِ The Prophet says, any of you who is, who is coming on a hijrah, physically you moved from Mecca to Al-Medina. That's technically the meaning of the hijrah. But in the overall evaluation, if you made that move from Mecca to Al-Medina, this is in the, during the circumstances of those 10 years after the Prophet's Hijrah. If you did it because you are intending to gain a certain woman, woman, or you are intending to begin a business, then that's, your Hijrah is to that for that purpose. It's not a Hijrah for Allah. So there is a refinement of the word Al-Ansar and a refinement of the word Al-Hijrah, which, of course, you will never, ever find in the writings or in the speeches of these Salafis who purport to speak for the rest of the Muslims who are not Shi'is or Ibadis or etc. So why, why now do we have all of this verbal, mental, propagandistic all the way to military attacks against the Shi'is in Iran. Why? Ask yourself. It wasn't there. 41 years ago, it wasn't there. It's simple. It's because they have now a power base. That's as simple as it. If they didn't have a power base, they would be, they would be considered just like all other Muslims. They have their mistakes, they have their virtues, they have their evils, they have this, that, and the other. But at the end of the day, they're Muslims. But now that they have a power base, then 
we have to say that they are not Muslims. And they take that all the way up to the word kafir and mushrik. They are kafirs and mushrik and everything in between. Fasiq and fasid and fajr and everything you want. They'll put on the list. And is this something new? You see, this we don't we don't learn that from our own history. Let's put the Shias aside for a moment. During the time of Ibn Taymiyyah, the first we can you may some may call them the first generation of Salafis. During that time, the Ashairah, the Ash'aris. Now Sunnis don't know they are Ash'aris because mentally speaking, they have dwarfed themselves. But if they were to regenerate their minds, they'd realize the issues, the questions, the philosophical challenges, the ideological and religious profound questions and issues, they were answered by Al-Asha'ira. And so the overwhelming majority of Muslims inherited that as a tradition but not as a thought. During that time, when they were Asha'ira and Mu'tazila and Shia and etc., the Asha'ira had a state. It was called the Ayyubi state, the Ayyubiyun. And the Salafis designated the Ayyubiyin as enemy number one, beyond the Shi'is, because the Shi'is didn't have a state. And we're concerned with them. But when you have a state, you have a power base, you have a military, you have independence, you have your freedom. Ah, oh, you're enemy number one now. That's the way it goes. So they're, they're, they're behaving consistently. Historically, that's the way they behaved. And contemporarily, that's the way they're behaving. And we can trace this. All of, the, all of these problems and issues that right now are either misunderstood or ignored or forgotten all of these issues can be traced back to the damage that King Muawiyah and the other kings that followed him did to the Muslims. All the Muslims, no exception. And still, after all of these years, no one has come along and said, wait a minute here, let's take time off, let's catch our breath, and let's see what happened what happened to us so that what happened to us in the past so that it does not happen to us now or tomorrow we haven't done that we're still locked into this sunni shi'i antagonism whether it's a friendly antagonism or whether it is a heated antagonism it's there and no one is working on it and we have all had all of this time all of these centuries allah is going to hold us hold us accountable for this let me just mention for some of my brothers and sisters who consider themselves sunnis i wish they could outgrow that design, designation the same way i wish shi'is could outgrow their designation 
Let me mention something to these brothers and sisters in this Sunni context. One of the least known events in our early history, in the Prophet's time, the Prophet was in the masjid. And around him there were attendees. The Salafis call them Sahabas. They were around the Prophet. And Fatima, the Prophet's daughter, enters the masjid. And one of the persons there said, Dakhalat bintu Muhammad. Muhammad's daughter has just entered. Some of these history books, they want to hide the person who said that. And the fact of, of this hiding process began with the Umawis. The person who said that, for those who don't know, is Abu Sufyan. And it's in a disregard. It's like, let's say, a person that you admire, that you love, that you hold in high esteem, etc., that you are devoted to. His daughter enters into your house or into a meeting. And then you say, such and such, the daughter of such and such, without any respect. A, a, a statement of respect could have been, دَخَلَتْ بِنْتُ رَسُولِ bintu Or if he wants to use the word Muhammad, no problem. دَخَلَتْ فَاطِمَ بِنْتُ مُحَمَّدٍ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ الْمَسْجِدِ But this subtle omission of the Prophet's status in a few words by a person like that lives on and on. If you, if you make a little effort and dig deep down inside some of these books that are called Sahihs. Okay, there are many Sahih hadiths in them. But there are hadiths in them, they're not Sahih. One of these hadiths, and this, we've, we've spoken about the problem we have with hadiths, and they have to be sorted out. One of these hadiths said that the Prophet, all of this began during the Umawi time, and it lives on with us today. They, it, one of these hadiths said that the Prophet saw a very beautiful lady. And after seeing her, he went, excuse me brothers and sisters for me being very frank, I have to, because we have to overcome this. It says, after the Prophet saw this beautiful, attractive lady, he goes and he has sex he has sex with one of his wives. And then he comes back and sits with his guests. And he, according to this forgery of a hadith, says, What I did was I saw a beautiful, attractive lady. I went and had sex with my wife. And you should do the same thing if that happens to you because... Your wife has what that attractive lady has. Astaghfirullah. It's there. This is this this is how we respect our prophet. For those of you who want the Arabic wording of it, man ra'a minkum imra'atan a'jabathu 
فليدخل على امرأته فإنه معها ما معها The bottom line is whether it's a Sunni who is more interested in Shiism or whether it's a Christian who is more interested in Islam Allah says فَبَشِّرْ عِبَادِ الَّذِينَ يَسْتَمِعُونَ الْقَوْلِ فَيَتَّبِعُونَ أَحْسَنَةِ أُولَٰئِكَ الَّذِينَ هَدَاهُمُ اللَّهِ وَأُولَٰئِكَ هُمْ أُلُوا الْأَلْبَابِ People look for what is right. The truth that is stated and they will do their best to follow up with that truth. And they don't look at the negatives of what we do. And we suffer because of that. أقول قولي هذا وأستغفر الله لي ولكم ودعوه سبحانه وأنتم على يقين بالإجابة وتوبوا إلى الله إن الله تواب رحيم الحمد لله الذي هدى صلى الله وسلم على سيدنا المصطفى وعلى آله وصحبه أولي النهى وأولي التقى Dear committed brothers, dear committed sisters, أيها المؤمنون Now we try to look at the immediate events that have unfolded in the past week or so that should be placed in our understanding of Allah and His Prophet. We know now that the inheritor of all of the historical deviations is represented by the rulers in the Arabian Peninsula. They embody all of our negatives that we have in our history. And they don't stand alone. They are supported. They, they won't survive. They can't survive if they didn't have the military, the political, the economic, all types of supports they get from their masters in Washington, Tel Aviv, and Europe. They wouldn't survive. They couldn't survive a few weeks. But they survive. And for those of us Muslims who cannot understand history through our current days and times, you should understand that Muawiyah and Yazid could not survive if it wasn't for the support, the sponsorship, militarily, economically, financially, in any type, in any strata of life, they wouldn't have survived for weeks or months. 
History is now. And now was history. So we have one of the supporters of the Saudi regime, the ex Vice President of the United States, Biden, said that the U.S. should not be giving any more support to Saudi Arabia. And that has to do, according to his way of thinking, because the Saudis have failed in their war in Yemen because of the ugly <clears throat> and the scandalous way <clears throat> that they assassinated, that they killed and butchered one of their own, the journalist Khashoggi. So he wants the U.S. to stop sending weapons to their flunkies in the Arabian Peninsula. Something new, you think? They had a flunky in Iraq. And you see what happened to him. Now they have flunkies in the Arabian Peninsula. It's only a matter of time until we see what is going to happen to them. And then we have France, another sponsor of this neo-Umawi regime in the Arabian Peninsula. France is complaining. Saudi Arabia is not paying its dues to support the troops that are in the African Sahel. They have military bases there, NATO countries, and the first one to complain now is France, telling the Saudis, where's the cash, where's the money you're supposed to be paying for our military presence in these countries, in Africa. And then you have the non-functional king in the Arabian Peninsula who just spoke out. We want to hear his words. Let the Muslim public, let the world hear him speak. What are you speaking behind closed doors? They know, they know that the person that they are relying upon cannot be relied upon any longer. So this king comes out and he says, Iran now should take it very seriously because we are at a juncture. Say that to yourself. Take these events very seriously because you have led your kingdom, the whole region, and the rest of the Muslims to the dead end and the deadlock that we are in. In the meantime, the occupant of the White House, I think the word president should be removed, you call him King Trump, has increased the number of U.S. troops in the Arabian Peninsula to 3,000. How would Americans feel if the number of Muslim troops came to the United States, established bases here, and were going in and out, increasing and decreasing from time to time, depending on the developments. How would you feel? 
That's in addition to radars and missiles and rockets and weapon systems and all of this. In the past week, the Saudi regime said it has it has found 55 officials, government employees who were basically frauding the system. And it gave them each one 55 years in prison in addition to some financial penalties. The head of the air forces, the United States, Saudi Arabia, and France have met in this past week. What were they discussing? They tell us they were discussing the security of the Gulf. That is a diplomatic way of saying they were discussing how to deal with the Islamic Republic of Iran. If you may recall, some years ago, one of the Muslim leaders in Tunisia, Rashid al-Ghannoushi, was prohibited from Hajj. Salam. Was prohibited from going to Hajj. He arrived, but then they gave him the ill treatment and he had to leave. Today, in the past 24 hours, the king of that kingdom sends a congratulatory message to Rashid al-Ghannoushi because he's become the head of parliament in Tunisia. And some Muslims, they think that king has some Islamic feature to him. The foreign minister of the Israeli colonizers of the Holy Land. That foreign minister says that the U.S. and Israel have been working on an agreement of non-belligerency between Israel and those statelets that are in the Gulf with the mother state Saudi Arabia meaning Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, and probably Oman. All of this? No, Muslims should not be thinking about these things. You Muslims, what are you trying to do? No, we want to think about them. Allah has given us a mind. He has given us a Quran. He has given us a prophet. He has given us a direction and a way forward. If we don't begin to think about these with Allah's words, and the Prophet's precedent in our heart and mind, we're going to still suffer from the same thing we've been suffering from. There is a preacher in Saudi Arabia, his name is Al-Kalbani. Recently, I think it was yesterday, he publicly stated that there's nothing wrong with singing. Oh, if he wants to st stop there, that's his opinion. But he says, he goes further and he says, the prophet listened to singers whom his wife brought and they were using musical instruments and the prophet was correcting them in their songs. 
And where did he get this information from? Well, he went to one of these forbidden areas in the books of hadith and he found in Al-Bukhari that there's a hadith to that effect. Where was this hadith? In these previous years when Hay'at Al-Amr Bil-Ma'roof and Al-Nahi An Al-Munkar used to go and whip or detain or humiliate anyone who would sing. But now the policies have changed. Now the Saudi regime has discovered some hadiths to legalize their new policies of entertainment, bring in the singers to the lands of Mecca and al Medina, bring in the entertainers, bring in the artists, bring in the performers. And so, what has happened in history is happening now. During the Umawi, Abbasi, etc. times, rulers, they had policies and they wanted clergymen to justify their policies and we see it happening now. The United States, Pompeo, the State Department says, the Israeli settlements, look at that word, they, they bring that word and they impose that these are not settlements, these are colonies. And Muslims, because they don't think for themselves, they borrow the words that their enemies use. These are not settlements, these are colonies. But he said, his wording is settlements. They are not in contradiction with international law. He can say something like that because our masajid are void on Fridays. No one is raising the consciousness of the Muslims and the consciousness of the non-Muslims so that they can speak truth to their bloody power. This week, two events happened during this week. 44 years ago, this week, Anwar al-Sadat, who was called the Ra'is al-Mu'min, remember? Some of us are a little older in life. Al-Ra'is al-Mu'min surrenders to the Israelis. He goes on his visit to Al-Quds, to Tel Aviv or whatever he went to, colonized Palestine, to the Knesset. Isn't that something we should remember as a chapter of infamy in our current events? And also during this week, actually on this day, 56 years ago, the President of the United States was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. And no one up until this very day knows exactly who was behind that assassination. Well, the Christians don't have a Qur'an and they don't have a, a prophet. They don't have Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. They don't have them. It's okay, they can't figure it out. But we Muslims, even if it's not an Islamic person, we should have a thinking mind that can trace who were those who were behind the assassination of that president. There are two Egyptian scholars whose daughters are in prison 
And this should be mentioned also in the masajid all around. Even though Al-Ikhwan Al-Muslimin have their mistakes, very serious ones, we have issues with some of their decisions, etc. But these at the end of the day are brothers and sisters. Two of their daughters, Al-Qardawi's daughter and Khairat al-Shatir's daughter, are in prison suffering at the edge of life and death. And all this, no, we're not supposed to speak about these. No, we're supposed to speak about these things. Jeremy Corbyn, there's two parties in that sick man of Europe. Britain now is the sick man of Europe. One of the contenders for being the prime minister is Jeremy Corbyn. And he says in his campaign that if he becomes prime minister, he will halt in his election manifesto. He says he will halt all shipments of arms to Saudi Arabia and Israel. At the same time that Israel itself and the Saudis are in a war position against Muslims. The United States since 2001 has spent somewhere between six and seven trillion dollars on wars. Imagine if that amount of money was spent to feed the poor of the world, to help the suffering populations of the world. How much effect that would have had on the whole world. But no, they choose war. They choose to fund a war instead of feeding the poor. Real life. I don't know if on a note of semi-optimism, I may say that it's been decided by some heads of Muslim heads of state to convene a mini- Islamic summit and this will include five Muslim countries those Muslim countries are Indonesia but in by no order of particular order Indonesia Malaysia Pakistan Turkey and Qatar this initiative has been set into motion by two heads of state the head of state in Malaysia and the head of state in Turkey and I think if I read the news item correctly the first miniature summit they are going to have is going to be next week and one of the purposes they said the main purpose for this is to try to move the Muslim masses to help the Palestinians and no one can disagree with that if they can live up to that responsibility. Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan warzuqna attiba'a wa arina al-batila batilan warzuqna ajtinaba wa la taj'alhu multabisan alayna waj'alna lilmuttaqina imama Allahumma ilayka nashku dha'fa quwatina وقلة حيلتنا وهوانا على الناس يا أرحم الراحمين أنت ربنا وأنت رب المستضعفين 
فإلى من تكلنا إلى غريب يتجهمنا أم إلى عدو ملكته أمرنا إن لم يكن بك علينا غضب فلا نبالي ولكن عافيتك هي أوسع لنا نعوذ بنور وجهك الذي أشرقت له الظلمات وصلح عليه أمر الدنيا والآخرة من أن تنزل بنا غضبك أو تحل علينا سخطك لك العتبى حتى ترضى ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بك اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على محمد وآل محمد بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر ومن أظلم ممن منع مساجد الله أن يذكر فيها اسمه وسعى في خرابها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها إلا خائفين لهم في الدنيا خزي ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم وأن المساجد لله فلا تدعوا مع الله أحدا إن الله يأمر بالعدل والإحسان وإيتاء ذي القربى وينهى عن الفحشاء والمنكر والبغي يعظكم لعلكم تذكرون ولذكر الله أكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون يعلم خائنة الأعين وما تخفي الصدور أقم الصلاة وأرحنا بها Yeah. 